Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a new podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Brian Mooney. Brian serves as a managing principal of the Community Planning and Sustainable Development Division at Rick Engineering Company. He has more than 40 years experience in planning, public outreach, environmental analysis, research and development of public policy. He's highly respected in public and private planning arenas, and he's a member of the College of Fellows of the American Institute of Certified Planners. He's also chairman of the Urban Land Institute's San Diego Tijuana District Council, which promotes responsible land use and sustainable communities in the Cali Baja mega region. We hope you enjoy hearing from Brian. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Mr. Brian Mooney. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with all of you. Well, you are a staple in the community, but for those that don't know, why don't you share with us how you're connected to AEP and why? Sure. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to be part of the founding group of the Association of Environmental Professionals uh, back, I think it was 75. Uh, and uh, really that, and I was working with the County of San Diego. I was recruited out of college to work in this new field called environmental management. So CEQA uh, had just been shifted to address both public and private projects. And uh, really individuals throughout the state said, you know, we, we got to find an organization. There was no identity. There were no environmental studies programs. As a matter of fact, what the uh, Basically, the communities that were going to really emphasize CEQA did is they said, let's go find the people to implement this law. And they went to the universities and found the ologists. And I happened to be studying anthropology. And so I was part of that group of anthropologists, archaeologists, biologists, geologists. I always like to say it in a few geographers thrown in for good measure that became the original environmental planners, environmental management specialists. And part of that was then forming this new group called AEP. Uh, since then, I had the honor in the early 80s of becoming uh, one of the early presidents uh, of AEP. So I, I've been pretty active. I've done, I think, about everything in the association uh, that you can think of. And, um, and I've enjoyed it. And, I, and I'd really love to see the organization grow as it has and offer a, uh, a lens of professionalism. Uh, for now, we have, you can get a degree in environmental studies. You know, we have a code of ethics. We have a wide range of things that I think are so important. Oh, it's brilliant. And I just want to say thank you for being a part of the, the founding members of this um, organization because it's paved the way for me to have a leadership position on the board. Thank you um, for starting it. You made an excellent point about how there weren't degrees around this stuff um, in the beginning. And I'm a classic example. I got a degree in environmental studies and economics, um, and it was perfect. <laughs> it was perfect for me. So I can't imagine going to university and being like, what? I don't even know what I would study. Um, so you studied anthropology, and then you got into this environmental field. CECA was passed in the early 70s, and all of this happened. Please share with us, if you don't mind, some of your first experiences with a CEQA document. Like, what projects did you review? Well, I'll, go, I'll even go back a step further. So if the what got me into it was not just anthropology. I was doing both urban anthropology and archaeology, but it was more archaeology. And it, actually, I was working on a dig in um, Irvine, and it's probably 1972. And uh, they hadn't shifted the law. The Friends of Mammoth decision hadn't come down yet. 
And basically the owners of the company said, look, we want you to do this archeology span because we think they may make us do these reports <clears throat> that may have to be part of something called an environmental impact report. Uh, and I said, oh, good. And bought, what, what's an environmental impact report? <clears throat> they said, well, we're not sure yet because the lawyers haven't defined it. But um, really that was my introduction. And when I started, I was recruited by the county in 74 to a county of San Diego uh, and the same sort of thing. Well, we want to hire people that really understand what an archeology span site looks like. Oh, and by the way, were you trained to be able to look at biological resources, a thing called endangered species? Uh, habitats, you know, we're not quite sure what that is. Uh, geologic formations that might have, you know, land, uh, some sort of land fallout, land fill issues or anything of that nature, slippages. And so ultimately, it, my first experience was that going into a department, which, by the way, the Board of Supervisors and the planning department hated and said, what do we got to do with this, excuse the expression, BS4? <clears throat> what is this environmental garbage? And uh, ultimately, one of the endangered species that we were dealing with in San Diego, and I actually uh, was one of the individuals that reported to the board on this, was something called the Stephens kangaroo rat. And I can remember one of the conservative um, members of the supervisors saying, Mr. Mooney, what's the endangered species here? And I said, Stephens kangaroo rat. And they said, say that again, please. I said, Stephens kangaroo rat. You mean we're going to protect rats? I mean, what, what's the <laughs> logic to this? So there was a whole aspect in relationship to the evolution back in 74, 75, 76. The three areas that really were emphasizing CEQA were really the Bay Area, San Francisco, Santa Barbara, and San Diego. They had the quote unquote environmental conscious and largely because of, you know, they wanted to protect their natural environment. And quite often those three areas, whether you were conservative or liberal, you wanted to protect that aspect. So uh, I was in the very beginning, <clears throat> the 74, 75, 76 in the transition to where we had to make sure that we started identifying this as important. And um, I, I can't call out an individual project, but I can call out a number of them, but also the attitudes of the elected officials uh, towards what we were doing. Yeah, it's. I love hearing you talk about this because this is something, these conversations are still happening. When you say kangaroo rat, people are rolling their eyes and thinking this development's going to stop because of the kangaroo rat. And so how, you know, when this was getting started, this field was early, how were you explaining the importance of protecting these species at that time? You know, it's interesting. So we also had, the same was true with the archeology. span because people said, oh, that's just a couple of pot shirts. You know, that's a couple of broken rocks. How important is that? Uh, two things happened in San Diego, uh, which was one of the other endangered species is the California bighorn sheep. And so ultimately the bighorn sheep is a more majestic animal that people can identify with and say, oh, that's so important. We have to protect that. In the case of archeology, span the other thing that's important, San Diego has more Indian reservations than any other county in the United States. Basically, we brought on Native Americans to help tell the story. And that all of a sudden became a more important aspect. So it was, it was identifying those resources that people could relate to and say, oh, hey, yeah, maybe that is important. Secondly, very early on in the California Rural Quality Act, the greatest tool uh, and really the greatest emphasis and change came from courts. And we also emphasize, unfortunately, it's the law, Mr. Supervisor, Mr. Councilperson, uh, Miss Council person, you know, ultimately the, the legal aspects became very apparent very early on 
If you don't do it, you're going to end up in court and this is going to be storing up for a long time, just cost you more money. So there's an economic aspect that became a reality that people still didn't catch up probably till the mid to late seventies, but ultimately that became a key tool in the whole aspect. I love hearing these stories because it's, it's the reason why things are the way they are now. A lot of effort went, in, went into setting up our profession the way that it's, it's organized. Can you, would you mind sharing some key pivotal moment in your professional career where you maybe saw a shift where the profession just like took off or, or a key memory of where you had an influence or an impact on our environmental profession? Well, let me start with one of the things that got me interested in the environment. So the story I, I regularly tell is I'm actually from Cape Cod. So I'm from a very beautiful area, very unique area. Uh, Interesting enough, I'll tell you also a very diverse area when I grew up. People always left during the uh, after the summer, sometime on Labor Day, and it was just the locals that stayed, the townies, if you will. But I was also one of the few East Coast surfers. That's why I ended up in California. I transferred to college to come surfing the West Coast. I got out here, and one of the biggest things to happen to me that I remember so clearly was the oil spills in Santa Barbara and how it just destroyed one of the great surfing locations. The other thing is just as a surfer, part of the whole aspect is getting in tune with nature, with the wave and things of that nature. So that's, first of all, the basis of where I was coming from. Secondly, as a surfer, I decided to move to Huntington Beach. Moved to Huntington Beach and ultimately, one of the things I noticed, very unique versus Cape Cod, where it's a more rural, small town atmosphere and, and the beaches and everything, things. All of a sudden they were building these new communities with these wide boulevards and they had to be like anywhere from six to eight feet wide, just not many cars on. And then they had these walled communities, like barrier communities with walls around them. Later on, you learned that they were attenuation walls. And then you went into the community, had a small house with a fence around it. So it was like a big barrier. And I got interested in just the breakdown of the community itself. So carrying forward, I'm now at the County of San Diego. I'm also reading a book. <clears throat> I'm trying to learn as much as I can by Ian McCarg called Design with Nature <clears throat> and uh, classic written in 1968. And I said, you know, and the other one is I was in the middle of writing environmental reports that the board was rejecting and planners saying, well, if you believe them, we'll go this way. If you don't believe that. And I said, what we have to find is a way to integrate really our planning efforts, our technical studies and our environmental efforts. So that really more at one. Uh, in 1978, 79, I got recruited out of the county of San Diego to form one of the very first multidisciplinary planning, uh, community planning and environmental planning companies, cleverly known as Mooney and Associates, originally Mooney Latiri. And um, it was really, I'd say, one of the most strongest things I've been involved with was then the integration of those two environmental studies and planning to create complete communities that actually tried to solve those issues before you you know, really had your community plan versus just going out and grading it and writing a report against it. And I'd say in the in the movement of things and how we've evolved as a profession uh, in design, I think that's probably one of the more important things I've, I've had the opportunity. And uh, it's really from, go back to give the credit to Ian McCarg and carrying it over, but not just for natural resources, but also cultural values, cultural resources, heritage values, all those things integrated. So that we design a community, um, 
like a Scripps ranch, you have open space integrated through it. You still have the history of the ranch or these master planning communities. And I had a long history of that. But also, if you're working in downtowns, you might be preserving African-American heritage values or Chinese-American heritage values. Those are extremely important to me of how that's, and I'd say probably one of my greatest, if I have personally greatest contribution is developing teams of people that can provide that. Here, here, love it. it it's taking me back to when I took an urban design class from Howard Blackson. And I took for granted that urban design nowadays just involves open space. It just involves the concepts of mobility. It, it just naturally like where, I, where I'm at in my professional career, it already includes all these things. And to get to speak to somebody who was a part of that original integration to be like, okay, we've got um urban design where we're going to build roads and homes and then we've got this like environmental review process that we have to take care of why don't we do that together in advance and now look at where the profession is where we've got um sustainable community strategies regional transportation plans climate action plans renewable energy plans all these big long-range plans of development that are around the theme of natural resources preservation conservation ecological health those sorts of design by nature if you will exactly and actually by the way i want to give a, a, i hate to use these kind of colloquial terms but a shout out to howard howard's a very yeah. close friend and and what he's done so think of that in relationship to it's not just the the nat natural environment but it's also the cultural environment and heritage is part of it and so that's how we extend expanded mccarg's thoughts and it's when we design let's make sure that what you're designing fits in with the typology of what's there already in relationship to that uh and making something more meaningful the other one is with new cultures coming in let's find also things that can be inviting so that they can have their stamp on it and i'm always reminded of the town of westminster are you, are you familiar with the town of westminster yes and, and I was actually um, one of my closest friends who ended up getting his PhD in anthropology, ended up volunteering at Camp Pendleton when the Vietnamese were resettled in Camp Pendleton. And of course, Westminster was designed as a town to look like old England. And yet it became the major resettlement uh, and location for many Vietnamese to now it houses Little Saigon and ultimately has a transition that is done. So it's also having a flexibility in your communities, your neighborhoods, and your, your philosophies to allow for other cultural stamps to come in, at the same time making sure we have open space, that we're doing things that don't create heat islands, you know, this broader picture of everything brought together. And AEP, uh, and I would also argue APA and ULI, since I also have that as a hat, you know, need to be always looking at those things and how we can make better community, greater, greater places for all, all, all the people that we want to house. I love the cultural aspect of planning because I think, so my background is in business, which is why I'm a little quiet and listening because I love this and I'm learning a lot. And with like, I typically think of planning, you know, with the environmental aspect and then the city needs and economic and, and not the cultural aspect. And so when you're taking the cultural and like the heritage aspect in mind with developing these communities or, you know, like you said, downtown centers, how do you how do you make sure that you're actually getting to the heart of what's important to the community versus coming in and saying, I think this is what's important for you? Great question. Uh, and let me, by, by the way, also say, since we'll take the aspect of business. So in 79, I was recruited out to create a business, which we ultimately call Moody and Associates. 
and uh, ultimately became having that creative idea that was doing something a little different and it was bringing these two pieces together, uh, which it took me a few years to really perfect to become successful. But that was another aspect of how do you create a successful business? Uh, but one of the things is to have things that are uh, original and a word that we're using regularly now is authentic is you have to make sure one, you understand the history of the area you're dealing with and the history of the cultures and the history of the region, uh, the site, you know, all those aspects has to be brought into it. Two is you need to be incorporating the citizens that live in the area and their story and what their interests are. You know, public participation has become the cornerstone of really moving forward and achieving what we're doing. Is it a roadblock sometimes? Sure. So it can be difficult. It can be very, very hard. But that's one of those aspects. And we just finished. A, uh, I'm actually spending a lot of time working in Colorado. So I've got two comparative projects. Uh, one that I've just finished uh, that we're very, very proud of in Riverside, California, the North uh, it's called Northside Specific Plan, and it's going to add about close to or somewhere on 10,000 units, but also have a cultural center, which will have the uh, really the first settlement, which is a more Mexican period settlement and trying to create a old town for that area and celebrate the history of the area and revive an old uh, creek that runs through the middle. It was a golf course that was shut down because it wasn't economically viable. On the same time, I'm just finishing up a plan in Lafayette, Colorado, which is right next to Boulder. And there, they're, different. they're fairly successful, but they want to keep the authenticity of their community. They want to keep their, their unique, you know, <clears throat> kind of a university base, although they're not Boulder, a little different, but they don't want to be kind of, they want to be uh, as eclectic as possible. So it's finding those vibes. And, and we spend a lot of time in reaching out to really find the authenticity of a community you know, bound in the history. And then I also emphasize that makes good business. So that's important to get it to you, Jessa, uh, is that ultimately you want to find something that's economically viable. You want to have something that's going to be successful, that's going to move forward. Uh, and that's where things, again, I'm going to throw out that word again, authenticity is so important that we're doing something original, something that could be marketable and think of the big picture. I also emphasize is that, look at the culture, the natural environment are key things, but you have to have some basis in economic reality. So you want to make sure that it's something that survives. And it does that if you have the support of the community. I thank you for bringing up business as being um, a big component. We are entrepreneurs. You're an entrepreneur. You launched your own business. What was it like? Um, I realized that you were like recruited. You were asked to start Mooney and Associates, basically, to fill a need. There was a there was a need in the market. There was a gap in the market, and you launched this business. What was it like launching a business? Because in in my experience, it's a little bit like starting your own culture based on your heritage and bringing it together and having a culture of a business. It's a community of people. Um, how did you launch Mooney in our environmental profession, and how did it do? And where is where are you now? Great question. And my story is a little different. So <clears throat> I actually never started out to be a business person. I didn't see myself as a capitalist. I always saw myself. Originally, I was studying anthropology because I wanted to go to work for the State Department and work all over the world with people. It was always my connection to the environment. My connection to people was the most important thing. Uh, the individuals that brought me out said, look, at, <clears throat> we hate this law. They were very pragmatic, civil engineers and a developer. We hate this law, but you know what? We think this might make a good business. I'll throw this also out. They're all Mormon. <clears throat> and 
back in the day, actually, BYU was had a quarterback named Jim McMahon, who was an Irish Catholic. And I used to kid them. I say, you guys always, you, you're very good at business, but you need an Irish Catholic kid to run your operation, <clears throat> quarterback your team. But they brought, they didn't really care for it. And I said, and I knew that. And I said, look at, and they gave me 20% of the company. And they gave me X number of dollars. I said, I'll do this, but you got to let me be totally independent of you and what you want to do. And I'll, I think I can build a successful because I think I have an idea that nobody is doing. Most of the companies in those days were the environmental companies only wrote environmental impact reports. They did biology, cultural resources, noise. In the Bay Area, they may have done wind studies, wind tunnel studies. And I said, I want to do something very different. I want to do an integrated program. And that was part of my agreement. So ultimately, I did it. It was 1979. We opened our doors, literally February of 79. <clears throat> And then within a year, and I ended up winning some very large master plan communities, a place called Rancho Cielo, which was next to Rancho Santa Fe, um, Fairbanks Ranch, Fairbanks Country Club, communities that were higher end that wanted to integrate natural environment because they saw value in it, a place called Warner Springs Ranch. Well, it turns out I ended up having more success than they did in their own business. And they were minor, small subdivision engineers. So within three years, I built the company up to be able to buy them out. <clears throat> but I did have some shaky times across the bit. There was a point where they came back and said, well, we can't give you the other money we promised. So here's a note. You go borrow the money for yourself. You put your house on the line. You ultimately have to believe in yourself. I also want to give uh, a lot of praise to a friend of mine that was at the time the economic the, uh, business editor of the um, San Diego Union Tribune. And she actually, and I was really struggling because I said, geez, my house is on the line. What happens if it fails? And uh, to go talk to the Small Business Association. They sent an advisor down who taught me, because I had no business background, to looking at the numbers and sense of going through things and looking at my product and marketing style and said, look, you've got a good idea. You just need to understand cost and how you move forward. Uh, and the other thing is you've got to understand, you know, basically your employees, because you were really an employee-based organization. So it was learning those, those aspects. And then in 80, I guess it was 81, 82, I brought Tony Letiri on, who was a brilliant planner. And that really solidified that aspect of the environmental and the, uh, and the community planning. And all of a sudden, we became the hottest you know, item in Southern California as far as this combined integrated effort for planning. So that's how I went. And I, I had a supportive wife. So I want to also emphasize that, who uh, really wanted to see me move forward in, in, uh, in business side of things. But uh, the first couple of years were a little scary in relationship to it. But I liked the idea of thought. And it really was something that uh, I found uh, it's really more of a natural to me. I also understood what I didn't do well. And so I ended up bringing a friend of, another friend of mine in who was great. He was kind of a, more of a tough guy managing the difficult things and let me go out and develop the product and and do the planning and things like that where he did more of the day-to-day -day detailed in the office where you say there was an inside guy and an outside guy so understanding what you do well and then finding people to complement that with what they do well and never be afraid of hiring somebody that's smarter than you those are the couple of key things that i always would give anybody in entrepreneurial businesses yes, yes thank you Go ahead, Jessa. No, that's it. I'm just like, yes, yes. I'm aggressively nodding my head. I'm like, these are, are great tips for any profession, any career path is knowing what you're good at, accepting what you're not good at and finding someone 
to partner with or to help you, whether it's someone that you work for, that works for you, that you partner with. And like you said, not being afraid to work with people smarter than you. (laughs) The downfall of most companies are that aspect of feeling that I can do everything uh, for anybody. And then it's the other one is that also not recognizing when there's a downturn that you have to take action. And sometimes those actions aren't easy. Uh, but that's really that whole thing. Always keep an open mind to all aspects. Uh, but of, as I say regularly, it, you know, it also make sure that you have a passion for what you're doing. Don't do something just for money. You will never be as successful if it's just for money. It's ultimately got to be for a bigger picture of things. Yes, 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 yes. And today you're with Rick Engineering. So how did you end up there? And I know we're, I'm skipping, I'm probably skipping over a few years, but I'm so, I could talk to you forever about the history and your background and your career. I'm loving this conversation and learning from you. And so wondering just how you got to where you're at today, like what, what Give led you quick, to that? A quick synopsis of my career. So Mooney and Associates ultimately ended up doing very well. And uh, I really, I have three sons that I couldn't wait to bring into the company. And there are three bright young men that ultimately uh, I was just so excited about. It. <clears throat> the first one started in school in architecture and the second one started school in environmental studies. And the third one, he was lost and he started school in film. So we will, we'll talk about those guys later. But ultimately, uh, they basically are very bright and they all say, hey, dad, we love what you do. And they all worked in the company. I, that's something I required. In fact, one of the jobs I made them work was as a receptionist. They always broke the receptionist. And I used to say that this is going to be the best training you have, answering the phones. Uh, They did a wide range of jobs. But they all came back and said, you know, Dad, we love what you do. We've been very involved with it, but we've got to do our own things. And and I said, just like I'm just telling you, I said, find what you're passionate about and go after it yourselves. And I'll support you 100%. So they went a different path. And... um, Basically, one of the things, which is kind of getting long, long story short, ultimately, it was probably about 2000, um, uh, I got remarried in uh, 2003. I'm on my honeymoon in Hawaii. We lost our house in the Cedar Fire. And there was, so all of a sudden, the kids are off doing their own thing. They're going something. Just got remarried lost our house in the fire when you're honeymoon. I said, I got to really be thinking. And my business partner, one of my key business partners, who's the head of archaeology, culture resource management group, lost his house. And so all of a sudden, we're sitting there, and we lost 300 homes in Scripture Ranch, 2,000 in San Diego County. And all of that devastates you. We said, God, what are we going to do? And both of Richard, his name is Richard Carrico, and he's well known in the Culture resource. I had taken a class from Richard Carrico. Yeah, so Richard was my one of my business partners, and ultimately um, we said we've got to take a look at what's going on, and and I decided to spend the year helping rebuild parts of San Diego, and I became a member of a thing called the uh, Phoenix Project, rebuilding Scripps Ranch, and it was just an exciting time. But I found a way to balance uh, different things, and and we went to rebuild, and I moved downtown while we're rebuilding our house. Richard was doing the same thing. He moved to Old Town. But then I said, you know, Richard, I think maybe we should look at selling the company. And it just happened to be at a time I had been uh, courted by a number of companies in the past. I said, let me find a company that basically fits all of our visions and dreams. Uh, At the time, the the major company in the Western United States was a company called Jones and Stokes. And they had been approaching me and I knew it. And so I said, look at 
I'm interested because there are circumstances, but I'm going to set down, here's what my goals are, and I have to be able to achieve these goals in relationship to it, both financial and also professionally. And um, ultimately, they agreed to what I wanted to do. It sounded great. So I sold the company, little not knowing that they actually were trying to buy up companies to then sell that company. <clears throat> so what happened was I stayed at Jones & Stokes for three years. I think we grew, we developed a great programs in San Diego. We're known as Mooney Jones and Stokes. The rest of it was Jones and Stokes. But I added a, a planning element uh, to them. We strengthened the environmental element, also the uh, cultural resources of biology. Uh, and I think it was a pretty successful merger in relationship to that. Uh, we had offices throughout the Western United States. Then I found out three years later, they said, you know what? We really want to sell it. And we want to pay you off. <laughs> So they bought me out totally. And in essence, I was 57 years old with enough money to retire. And, um, but I wasn't mentally ready to retire. And so, uh, but I also had a non-compete clause because I had some more money coming. So I, I was making enough money that I didn't have to work per se, but that's not my personality. And so what happened was um, a friend of mine called me and I had clauses in my non-compete clause that said I could teach and I could uh, work for local government as long as I didn't start another consulting firm. And somebody came to me and said, hey, Brian, I got a friend that wants somebody to go to work for the city of Del Mar to help revive downtown Del Mar. And I said, you know, that might be interesting and ties me back to the water and surfing and yeah. So um, I created a one person consulting firm called Mooney Consulting Group and then accepted the job as community development director of the city of Del Mar. And I kind of wrote out my non-compete clause working back in government, uh, but as a consultant to the government. And lo and behold, I said, you know what? I'm not ready to retire. So once my non-compete period was done, I just said, I'll just start another company uh, and move Mooney Consulting Group to it. There's something called the Mooney Planning Collaborative and took assignments really throughout uh, California in working with a different group, groups of companies. Finally, the last one was Rick and Rick, we won this five, $10 million contract. And they said, what would it take you to come work for us? And I'm seven, I'm gonna be 65 that year. And I said, you know, here's what I want. And if you do this, basically I'll, I'll sign for three years. That was, just, that was in 2015. <clears throat> they gave me what I wanted. And I said, but I'd love to build a practice for all of your offices. And that's what brought me to Rick. And ultimately the company has been very good to me. I knew the founder of the company was somebody I always uh, just identified as one of the great leaders in our business. His name was Glenn Rick. He was San Diego's first planning director in 1928. Uh, the picture behind me is of Mission Bay. Ultimately Glenn did the first layout for Mission Bay in 1936. Uh, and ultimately in 1955 formed the Rick Engineering Company with his two sons. Uh, they basically have done most of the major planning engineering work in this region. They expanded in the 80s to Arizona. And I said, that would be a great legacy step for me to go to work for Rick because of what Glenn did and his son, Bill. And Bill was a key person, was on the port commission here uh, and had a number of different hats. So that's the road I took. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, always want to say I, I want to thank uh, the president, Roger Ball at the time for saying, yeah, Brian, come on over here. I'll, we'll give you what you want. And uh, they did, which more than anything else was independence. 
because I never worked with engineers or for engineers or partner. <laughs> they always worked for me as a consultant. So it's a, they think differently than you as a planner or a social scientist, anthropologist thing. But it's been a great marriage and I, I'm very appreciative of it. Thank you for sharing that because some of the things I picked up on was do what you're passionate about, basically follow your heart. You got to be passionate about it. It's not always the profit motive. It's, it's gotta be something that's going to fuel you and you, you open the door and seize the opportunities. And when life kind of slapped you in the face a little bit with a wildfire, you took a moment to be like, what do I really want to do? I want to rebuild. I want to be a part of this rebuild and sell the company. And then you know, your entrepreneurial spirit rose again and, you know, the Mooney Jones and Stokes thing happened and you just kept following it and growing it to the point where you, you were offered a position at Rick where you said, this is what I want. This is what I want. And I just want to encourage environmental professionals out there, whether you want to launch your own consulting firm, your own business, you want to work for government, you want to work for um, a leader, whatever you want to do, an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, always ask for what you want. And if you don't know what you want, maybe do some thinking and re like really considering what would be expansive in this. You are a living example of your life can continue to expand in ways that you can't even dream about or think about. Thank, Thank you so much. We want to know what's on the horizon. What's your next? <laughs> well, first project? of all, by the way, one of my other big things that I'm so proud of is having the opportunity to mentor give opportunities to young people just like you're saying and and i have a long list of individuals that i'm just so proud of uh and i will put uh, two of the you know, the top right there or at the top jose bodipo member who's in the sacramento area working for smud and the leadership role he's carrie fernandez who's with dudek in relationship and, and there's a whole list michael page with recon seeing your, the young people that you work with go on to leadership roles uh, Marcus Bush, who's now on city council in National City, you know, relationship and diverse individuals. That's something. So what's on the horizon now? I, um, I'm currently the uh, chair of the San Diego Tijuana Urban Land Institute. I recently uh, to have that position until 2022. Um, I keep on saying I'm thinking of slowing down. So I, I have kind of slowed down a little bit, <clears throat> but I, I slowing down means doesn't mean stopping. And so uh, that's offering me a lot of opportunities. Last week, for instance, I toured parts of Tijuana, uh, which I found fascinating relationship to. As I had been down, I used to spend a lot of time in Mexico as, as a surfer and also just somebody who just loved Mexico. Uh, with Tijuana and Sonata, uh, going down to a place called Cuatro Casas, um, south of Colonet. Uh, so all of these things were important to me. But the Urban Land Institute is getting me involved with more of the real estate side of development and influencing it for more of the inside. Uh, I'm also on the uh, board of trustees for the San Diego History Center, so that feeds my interest in always bringing history and culture uh, into a lot of things. And we're really diversifying San Diego History Center through it. Uh, I love sports. I'm on the board uh, committee for the Holiday Bowl. Holiday Bowl is currently moved to Petco Park, and we're going to be the Pac-12 versus the ACC. Uh, but one of my other passions is education into it. I teach I either lecture or teach uh, somewhere uh, every year. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Paul Curcio, was just taking a position teaching at UC Berkeley. He was at UC San Diego. I also am an adjunct professor at the New School of Architecture and Design uh, and get a chance to lecture at U USD and SDSU 
so I do that. But one of the main things I have done and I'm trying to do again is doing a, a documentary film. <laughs> um, my first one was called uh, The Nolan Plan, Vision, Politics, and Memory in San Diego, which ultimately was sponsored by APA and um, USD and San Diego History Center, uh, and bought by KPBS. This new one is called Temporary Paradise to City of Villages, Designing a Sustainable San Diego. Uh, and that is uh, my current passion. I'm hoping, I, I believe I have already made an agreement that I'll do it with ULI. I'm talking to San Diego History Center about partnering also uh, in relation to that. We're hoping to have it available for the 2022 June, May meetings, uh, the spring meetings at ULI that'll be held in San Diego, be national, international meetings. Um, I actually have another movie, which because of where I grew up and my passion for, you know, small towns on the ocean uh, called Beach Towns of the USA. And I so I, that's one of the things I'm just thinking about and not just the town, but the cultures of the town, who lives in these communities and where they are. But um, those are kind of some of the things I have happening uh, in the short term. And uh, I travel, uh, I, I have sons involved in a wide range of things in a number of different locations. So I get a chance to get back and see them. Uh, I have a long-term goal of traveling around the world. And that's one of those things and visiting places that, uh, but I want to tie it to something, you know, and really exploring how other communities are evolving during these different climate change and how that affects us is something, sustainability is something I'm very interested in, concepts of resilience and how that can be tied in, not just here in California, the United States, but really worldwide. I love this is you slowing down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's not many things. I'm not going to make any money. At the, so it's slowing down. What it was like when you were not slowing your full speed. <laughs> Where's your next place you want to travel? Do you have somewhere on the list that's had your eye? Oh, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. And so at the top, well, first of all, I've had the opportunity to actually live in Ireland when I was a student. And uh, I had the opportunity to go back to when I was in Ireland. I went to... Um, my family is a mixture of Irish, English, and German. Half half Irish though, and so I, I and I'm and my full name is Brian Farrell Mooney, and so I've always identified more with the Irish side. The English side is interesting uh, because they actually uh, came over with George the First, first Hanoverian king, uh, and John Rudolphus Reichenberg was part of his ministry group. And I can't tell you if his minister or whatever, but he ended up getting an estate in Cornwall. Cornwall's fat, and it's down near Land's End, a little town called St. Burian. And I just saw a great film the other day about um, the fishermen of Cornwall. I said, I got to go back to Cornwall. I just really, it's one of those things that uh, going back to places you've been, that, uh, you know, it, I was 20 years old when I was there. Actually, yeah, uh, probably 19. And uh, just the people and things like that. So seeing that part of the country. Uh, I really, uh, Carrico, you know, Carol, Richard. Richard's also a lover of wines. He would always spend times in so all Bordeaux. I said, all I remember him is he loved wine and he loved Nordstrom. And I'm like, yeah. you're my people. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to his 75th birthday in uh, I think two weeks. So that's oh, fun. But uh, uh, Bordeaux uh, is an area of France that I would love to visit. Uh, I also, um, my son just came back from, one of my sons, uh, my middle son, Ryan Patrick, just came back from Croatia. Uh, and Sarajevo, and I just that just Eastern Europe. I mean, there's areas where tourists all go to, and there's areas where tourists don't go, and that's so. Those are the things. The final stop is my wife is half Japanese uh, from things. So 
Tokyo, uh, and Japan. So G seeing Japan is another one that's high on my list in relationship to that. So that's a quick snapshot of some of the travel uh, that I'm looking forward to in the near future. They're locally, though, I'd say locally in the United States, I had a trip, I had to cancel to Alaska, and Alaska's high on my list. We look forward to hearing about your Alaska trip and your global expeditions. We, we're looking forward to the documentary, the new one, as well as I need to revisit the John Nolan one because that just gets me. I think I think John Nolan, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he said there's a place for everything and everything in its place. And that that's correct. Was that was like my motto for life. I just was, loved to organize. <laughs> that was part of his first plan for San Diego. So that yeah. was written into his first plan in 1907, 1908. Yeah. And it still lives on in my heart <laughs> and in your documentary. With that, um, I think we're at our time, although we definitely want to have you come back again. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of this wonderful inspiration. I, I imagine that the students and the young professionals that are listening to this are going to be motivated to engage more in the environmental profession because the opportunities will just keep coming. And thank you for all you've done, being a mentor, for you know launching AEP, for being a part of the environmental profession in general. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And with that, I'll send it over to Jessa for our wrap up rapid five. All right. So first, what is your favorite daily habit? You know, um, boy, that's a tough one, but I would have to say uh, I'm going to cross between uh, exercise, which I play tennis and hitting gym and having a glass of wine. So <laughs> they, 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 they conflict with each other, but yes. Uh, I, I, I love I do it. Enjoy working out, and that's really important to me. But then I also love a good glass of wine after I work out. My people. All right. Three things you'd bring to a deserted island. Um, three things I'm going to bring to a deserted island. Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, however, since I started off with the other one, obviously, I think I'd like to bring a lighter because I'd be terrible to rubbing two sticks together in relationship to being able to start a fire and creating something there. Uh, I think um, probably something in the lines of a either a great book or somehow access to something that I could read, if I have to read over and over again, because I'll be less so important. Uh, and then, um, you know, I probably would say some sort of, um, since I want to basically have to grow my own food, some sort of seeds in relationship to creating something domestic. And I was probably going to be a little cute and say uh, something to start a vineyard with. But uh, A true planner, really <laughs> very logical. All right, what's your favorite environmental policy? Oh, you know, uh, one of the things that I think has been extremely important in the environmental things was is the creation of the mitigation monitoring program. I remember when mitigation monitoring wasn't around, and ultimately, uh, so it, the policy actually a requirement in the guidelines uh, that actually says if you say you're going to do something, do it. And so uh, I'm going to really kind of the environmental policy aspect of looking at the bigger picture of how you implement the law. To me, that was one of the greatest uh, additions to the law that we have. Love it. Hey, favorite flora or fauna? Flora or fauna? Uh, you know, uh, I probably have to say from a flora standpoint, is an oak tree. 
I mean, the oak trees just really, whether it's a California oak, uh, you know, or the just such a such a, a you know important part of our environment and relations and means so much and actually was so life sustaining you know, for the Native Americans going up, you know, the acorn is becoming part of that aspect. So it's just an extremely um, important aspect of there. So I don't know if I can pick a fauna in relationship to, I'm not sure I can pick one out. I'm not a big, uh, I grew up when I was very, very young on a farm. And so my parents had, you know, a few cows, a few sheep and chickens, things of that nature. I think the, um, so, but I don't know that I have just one that I could name there. Okay, we'll, we'll take oak tree. <laughs> we'll accept it. And, and last one. Okay, finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if? Wouldn't it be cool if we could all live together in harmony? <sighs> oh, Brian, this speaks my you. heart. Oh, well, particularly so... in the problems we're having in, in the United States and all of that, and just finding that people could accept everyone in relationship to you know whatever your religion your color your thoughts your culture so wouldn't that harmony. be wonderful wouldn't it be cool if we all live <laughs> together in harmony by brian mooney love it let's plan it all right hey i got this <laughs> <clears throat> so well, we have to write so an rfp much, to so send out <laughs> yeah right I'll, rfi first then an rfp and then we'll go through a whole bid <laughs> process uh, hey i want to thank all of you. This has been an outstanding opportunity, both for me to express myself, but also it's a great, I think, uh, opportunity for really hopefully all of us in relationship to creating a venue to talk and about a wide range of issues. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Join AEP. Keep listening. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. We appreciate you. All right. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. Also, if you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo under a minute, uh, ideally to podcast with an S at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. Again, that's podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P dot org or any feedback that you'd like to share. We love feedback. Thank you.